that um, is actually, it's a paraphrase of Proverbs 11:28, and it says, a life devoted to things is a dead life. A life devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. But a life devoted to God is a flourishing tree. A life devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. But a life devoted to God is a flourishing tree. And the thing that I absolutely love about that is that that's a, that's a picture of what we're talking about. We're in a series called Purpose Driven Life. What on earth am I here for? Describing the fact that we know that from Scripture, God lays out purposes for why he created us. This is an amazingly important message for us to understand at any time in human history, but certainly right now. There's a disconnect between who I am and what I was created for and what my value is and where I can find that value or worth or identity. And so within this series, we're re-looking at what Scripture has to say about each of those things. And we're looking at uh, today, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. So open up your Bibles. If you've got a Bible with you, snag it. You're going to want to underline these verses. If you don't have your own Bible, but you're sitting next to someone who has a Bible, take their Bible, underline it. If, if this isn't underlined in their Bible, just shame them because these are, ama- these are two passages that are, are this, the two verses in Romans that are absolutely just like game changing. And we're going to take a look at them right now. Here they go. Paul puts it this way. This is in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And just an amazing theological book as a whole. Like if you want to know just a great, if you want a great theology book, there's lots of people who write great theology books. Romans is better. Just read through Romans. And he gets this in verse 12, chapter one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and what? Pleasing to God. And we'll get to that later. This is your true and proper worship. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And this contains in it the first part of it, the most important thing that you could possibly know. In fact, whether, you know, regardless of who you are, if you're a breathing human being, whether you're, you're a Christian, a Buddhist, an atheist, does not matter. The most important thing a person could possibly know is this, that God loves me. That is like, honestly, if a person, whoever you are, if you really owned that reality, if you registered that, I am loved me. Not someone who's super, like not Mother Teresa, not someone who's super religious, not my granny who goes to church every week, but me. I, in spite of all my stuff, I am loved by God. That's the most important thing any human being could possibly know. It would change your psychology. It would change your outlook. It would change the trajectory of your life. It would change how you deal with conflict. It would change how you deal with relation, everything. If I knew that God loved me, like for real, like legit loved me, not like, but loved me, game changer. That's what he's talking about here. In view of that, in view of God's mercy, his merciful love for you, Offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's the second thing. The first part is the most important thing to know. The second part is the most important thing to do. This verse right here includes the most important thing a human being could possibly know, that God loves me, and the most important thing a human being could possibly do, which is to love God back. And that's our first purpose. The first purpose, it's the most important purpose of the whole five because it comes down to the fact that you weren't created for your own pleasure. You were designed and planned for who? 
God's pleasure. You were designed for God's pleasure. Your life is not about you. I mean, as far as like living out your ultimate purpose, if you make your ultimate purpose you and your dreams and your desires and your skill sets and your ups and your downs, your life will be like this. However, if you, are, if you recognize that you are designed on purpose for God's pleasure, it is a game changer. And the, the Bible's term for that is worship. But that's a problematic word. Because when I say worship, what do you think? Hmm? Singing, yes. Saturday service said Carlos. Yeah, okay, so I mean, honestly, like, okay. And again, that's fair, because what's Carlos's official, like, title right now is worship pastor, okay? He's the, pa- he's the leader. He hopefully does music and singing better than Errol, right? And so if he can sing better than us, he can lead us in music. But here's the problem with that. Worship is not music, Worship is one vehicle, one of many vehicles for worship, but music is predated in scripture by worship. So like, uh, how many of you have an Instagram account? Okay, how many of you would know what Instagram was in 1999? No, it wasn't there, it wasn't a thing. Like if someone said, what's your Instagram account in 1999? They were like, what are you talking about? But now, Instagram is a thing. There was a time when it wasn't a thing, and there was a time it was a thing, and from this point on, people know what that thing is. Worship and music are the same thing. Worship predates music and scripture. From Genesis 1, we have worship. Music doesn't show up till Genesis 4. Worship was a thing long before music was a thing. We've just kind of consolidated in a really, really weird way. Worship is something that every human being was designed for. This is the crazy thing. Whether you're religious or not, Christian or not, you are a worshiper. As long as you're breathing, you're worshiping something. Worship is like, like, and we, even how we describe stuff, like, oh my gosh, this guy totally worships his girlfriend, right? Or, oh man, this guy got a Camaro, he worships that car. What does that mean? It means that he's all about that, or he's all about her, or he's all about, man, this person just worships their house. Like, you should see their lawn. It's sick. And they do scots, like, not four times a year, but 44 times a year, you know, or whatever. When we worship something, we're ascribing value and like intentionality, and I I make everything about this person. And so we were designed to do that, but we were designed to do that for God. And so I want to just change this word that instead of plan for pleasure or even plan for worship, we're planned to make God smile. We're planned for making God smile. That when God sees us, when He knows us, when we're operating within His design, we're making Him smile. There's a blessing in the book of Numbers. Number 625, and there's actually a worship song that is called The Blessing that has this, this passage in there. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face what? Okay, you know, the, you know this passage. Okay, what a weird term. Who shines their face? Yeah, he, she walked in the room. She shined her face on all of us. It was weird. It's like, who does, that's a weird term, but it's all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. This idea of God's face shining upon us. And, and, and the author of Numbers is, is saying that that's something that's important for us to try to be after, the God shining his face on us. And basically, it's another way of saying smile. Like if you're somebody that, that you, you meet someone you haven't seen in a long time, that you love, and you see them, and you're like, <gasps> like your face illuminates. Or like if you're dating someone and you're in high school and you haven't seen the person you're dating for a long time, like I'm talking like an hour and 15 minutes, and all of a sudden you see them, it's like, <gasps> 
Like if you get a gift, if you get a gift at Christmas or for your birthday and you didn't see it coming, like it's like you, this person saved and saved, but it's exactly what you wanted. All of a sudden your face starts to illuminate. It goes, <gasps> when I think of Mexican food, <gasps> it's, it's shining. It's this illumination, right? And, and that's what happens. And so scripture says that that actually happens with God and us, that I can actually make God go, <gasps> that I can produce that. Which, of course, brings us to the Karate Kid. Now, the Karate Kid, is this, I, and I don't care how many times I use this illustration, because it, it's true every time. If you're not familiar with the story, it's 1984. You got Daniel, and he wants to learn what? Karate. Why? Because he's being beat up, right, by a bunch of other guys who've been in another dojo. The other dojo's name is? You know it. And Cobra Kai has got, like, you got Johnny, and they got all these other, you know, and they're, like, just training, and they're, like, totally bullying this guy. The only thing he wants is to be able to defend himself. And so all of a sudden, he meets who? Mr. Miyagi. Someone at Saturday service said Miyagi. I said, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi can actually teach him, and so this is great. And so he wants to learn Miyagi, he wants to learn Miyagi's style of karate. There's a problem with that. It makes zero sense. As he's going through each one of these lessons, Daniel is growing more and more frustrated because he's not teaching me karate. Learning how to paint a fence or sand a floor. I feel like I'm a slave. I'm not a karate master. You're teaching me junk. You're not teaching me anything. And throughout the whole movie, you have stoic Miyagi who barely breaks a smile. The whole time, he's absolutely stoic until, until the end of the movie. And this is what I love. At the end of the movie, you have the 1984 All-Valley Karate Championship. And Daniel gets a chance to go up against his arch nemesis, Johnny, of Cobra Kai. And in that moment, all of the stupid backwards teachings, the stupid backwards methods of Mr. Miyagi all of a sudden show full effect. The sand the floor, the paint the fence, even the goofy beach thing that he taught him to stand on a pole and do a crane, that becomes the epicenter of the final moment of the match when Johnny is about to take him on. And little Daniel LaRusso gets up in the crane, the goofiest looking thing. I would do it right now for you, but you'd be totally jealous about how awesome I do it. He gets up there and boom, in the last second, he slaps Johnny right in the face and he wins the match. And it's like, it's like one of those things, where, and the, the music kicks in. Ba, ba, da, ba, ba, ba. Everyone's screaming. Elizabeth Shue runs on this scene. It's like, you're crying. It's awesome. And this, this is what I'm getting to. The movie doesn't end with Daniel. The movie doesn't end with his face or his glory. How does the movie, how does Karate Kid 1 end? What is the last section of film of the movie? Mr. Miyagi doing that. And in classic 80s fashion, he's doing this and then freeze frames. Because that's what you do in the 80s when you want to make a point. You freeze frame that final scene. And so Mr. Miyagi freeze frames and ba da 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 da. The credits roll. And I'll tell you what, I'm not a crier. I'm not a crier. You can ask Julie. I don't cry at hardly anything. I didn't cry at any one of our boys' births. I'm not a crier. That scene chokes me up every single time. It's stupid, but you know why it chokes me up? It's because you've got the master who's been teaching the kid, who is resistant to him, his teaching his whole life, the whole way through the whole movie, and in the final moment, he sees it, and then all of a sudden, in the final moment, you get the, the guy who was stoic through the whole movie, looking at this student, smiling and proud, and that is what we were created for. I was made to do that with God. 
And Jesus even describes that. When we live our life in worship, the response of God is, well done, good and faithful servant. We get a chance to make God smile. You may not make, very, you may not make people proud in your world. You may not make, the, the, you may not make the, your friends smile out of pride because they know you. You may not make your girlfriend or boyfriend smile. Maybe you do. Maybe some of us in this room, a lot of people smile and they're so proud of you. Some of you, it might just be your mom. She's the only one who ever like smiled and was proud of you. But we have the capacity to do that with the Lord. And that's worship. That's worship. And I guarantee you, it's far less religious than it sounds. And Paul even points it out. The last part of that verse we just studied. This, when we give our bodies in, in, as, a op, as, as an op, we, like our living for God, just every day of the week, he's not saying, here's your religious action. Like if people are like, okay, what's, I know what worship is, Paul. Just tell me what the, the religious thing I'm supposed to do. And Paul's like, it's not religious. It's Monday. He says this, this is your what? True. And what? Proper worship. Meaning he's drawing a contrast to what their understanding and definition of worship is. Okay, they didn't have Hillsong, they didn't have Bethel, but they had an understanding of what worship was. Worship was you go to a temple, whether it's to God or it's some pagan deity, you go to a temple and you worship. You bring sacrifice, boom, I did bad stuff, hope the gods are happy, and I go home. And the cool thing is, I could do that, make that deposit, and walk away unchanged. Monday through Saturday are no different. And the reality is that Paul's like, yeah, that's normal, but that's not true or proper. Your life, your Monday is your true and proper worship. This is like when, when, when we hear Carlos say, don't go to church to worship. Bring your worship to church. Your worship, this, isn't, this is a service that's intended to launch you into a week of laying down your life for Christ. That's your true and proper worship. It's making God smile. So how do we do that? Well, he, he tells us, don't conform to the pattern of this world. You want to know how we live Monday through Saturday as worshipers, as making God smile? We make God smile by simply saying, okay, there's a pattern in this world and I'm, I'm not going to like fall into that. Now, what Paul is talking about specifically here is that there's a popular perspective of the current times that we're not supposed to fall into. And, and this word for world is not globe, it's aeon. It means um, like the times you live in. So when Paul's not writing in 2022, right? He's writing in the first century. Paul's saying in the first century, there's a popular perspective within the Roman, the Greco-Roman world that, that isn't in alignment with what God's called us to live out. Like it, it's, and, and it's super easy to fall into that pattern, but we're not called to do that. There, there's a perspective, there's a, um, like a cultural perspective towards government that as Christians, we, we, can be, we can live liberated from that. There's a sexual perspective, a sexual ethic perspective. Everyone is operating within the Greco-Roman world with an approach to sexuality that makes perfect sense to them, but it's just not in alignment with God's perspective. There's a, a perspective towards domestic abuse where it's completely okay. And yet we see Paul time and time again calling that out as something that's not in alignment with God's perspective. There's a pattern that we're not supposed to fall into. Okay, so let's just take this red gummy bear. This red gummy bear, let's just pretend that that's like someone living in the first century not a Christian. I mean, they're just operating. They've got, they they want to they love, love their family. They want to have, you know, have a good life, make a lot of money, etc. Makes perfect sense. But they have perspectives and aspects to their world ethic and worldview that are outside of a Christian's perspective. And they live next door to another person who does the same thing. Who lives next door to another person who does the same thing. And what's going to be the fourth? What are, what are we going to see come up on the screen on the fourth? 
Right, that's what's called patterns. This is why when you study culture, any culture throughout human history, and you ask the question, like, why did they do what they did? Why was that okay back then? How could you possibly so, be so archaic to believe this? And they believed that back at that time frame. Well, it's because it's very easy for human beings to fall in line with the pattern. This is normalized. It normalizes basically whatever my perspective is, it's going to happen. And so for a culture, they have to figure out what their values are, and then they, they go for those values. Okay? That, that's just, again, any culture regardless of where it's been on the planet, regardless of what point in human history, there is a pattern. And Paul's saying is that you're always going to find the case that whether this is the first century or this is 1952 or 1969 or 2004 or 2022, you're going to, if you're a Christian, you're going to see a pattern at place and that what God's calling you to do is not be that fourth gummy bear that's falling in line with the same pattern as everyone else, that you're actually called to live differently so that we're called to love everyone that we are around. We're called to love each of these people. They have a different perspective, a different worldview, and God's called us to love them, but not to fall in the same line. So whether it's the political sexual ethic or it's the, it's the way that domestic abuse is approached or whatever, we're, we're called to be, even though this is something that happens with this person, with this person, with this person, when it gets to us, there will most decidedly be a difference and a good one, a better one. Not that we're better people, because we're not. We're just as red gummy bear as anyone else. And honestly, we've got red gummy bear inclinations. But the truth is, is that God has called us to break the pattern. Many of you have a pattern from childhood. Like, you, you, I'm like, oh yeah, well, I'm this way because my dad, and his dad before him, and that's why I'm this way. Yeah, that's a pattern. And Paul's like, whatever age you're in that you've adopted or you inherited or you've been born into, there's going to be a pattern that's going to run in conflict with this. And you just step out of that and you say, it's cool for me to break the pattern. Some of you, you look in your own history. Man, this is the way I deal with this issue time and time again. It's like a pattern in my life that I can't break. And Paul is saying, you want to know how you break that? You just ask yourself, what is going to make God proud in this situation? What is going to make God smile in this situation? And boom, I make that decision in spite of what's within me. This is what I call letting your decisions flow from his design. This owns the fact that I, as a person, as a human being, from birth, have been inclined to do stuff that's going to be in conflict with this naturally. I'm naturally not inclined to follow God's design for my life. I mean, naturally, I feel, I feel like I'm naturally inclined to go the opposite way. I was totally born with that. I was totally born with a perspective, whether it is with, with regard to rage or with regard to sex or with regard to anything. There's this natural inclination to do what I want to do. And if I'm the object of worship, if I'm the epicenter, that makes perfect sense for me to follow my dreams, what makes me happy, and whatever. Truth be told, we all know that when we do that, we don't end up fulfilled, happy people. We end up bitter, miserable people. And there's a reason for that. Because we're not letting our decisions flow from his design. His designs are going to frustrate our desire time and time again. But it's only after we recognize that following his lead makes sense that we look back and say, I get what he was after all along. The most me, me I can be, is following his design for my life, not my desires. The most errol I can be 
is following his design. The most human, like I want to be the most human, the most alive human possible, the most fulfilled human possible. The most fulfilled human, the most real Errol, the most true me is not me denying all of my desires. It's just saying those are the imposter me. They're the poser me. His design is the ultimate me. That's who I'm supposed to be. And so I let my decisions, even though they frustrate my desires, flow from his design. And, and he cares about that. This passage actually should be Psalm um, 18. And it says, may these words of my mouth, this is, this is like, like the, the, the psalmist describing what God's after. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist is saying, God cares about how I think. He cares about what I, what I dwell on, what I'm after, what I, what I, what I fantasize about, what, what I make priority in my life, what the actions I take. He actually cares about that because he knows that I am designed to make him smile, to make him proud for his pleasure, not for mine. Uh, that actually is going to be the best thing for me. This is how we do that. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is training our brain. No matter what you're doing, whether it's a sport or it's a hobby or it's a skill set or you're just on the job training, you have to be training your brain to do something that you're not naturally inclined to do or, or to do something different than you're naturally wired, seemingly naturally wired to do. And this renewing our mind is the idea that our brain is, is stacked against us wanting to make God smile with our decisions. So we're like, okay, I need to renew that. I am not going to just basically go through my life and shoot from the hip and make all the decisions that are going to make God smile. I need to do something that's going to transform my, my mindset by renewing it. So you showing up here, this is not, the, the, this is not where we, we keep the boundaries of worship held. Like we're not, we're not stuck in worship here, but this is a great launching pad. You come in here, and what we do is we remember what we're all about. We allow this service, this hour-long service, to renew our, our brain, to realize that, that God loves us, that he's made a sacrifice for us, that he's got a life for us, and that we can live it, and that he empowers us. And then we walk out of here, and we keep on doing that. We go through the rest of our day allowing our brain to be renewed, but realizing we can't just run on the fumes of Sunday. And so what we need to do is we need, if we want to renew our mind, we need God's perspective built into us. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to be the type of person that carves out a part of your day to spend time with God, to just talk to him, to read from his word. This is, this is so cool. Like I am, I, I would love to tell you, let me tell you, for 25 years, this is what I've been doing every single day and it's grown me closer to Jesus. I'd love to tell you that, but I'm so ADD. I do something like this for this period of time. I do something like this for this period of time. Can I share with you what I do right now that really helps me with this, that helps train my brain? Okay, usually what we would do, like Julie and I, we wake up and we get the kids out of the house, like <laughs> Cohen's gone, <laughs> Rylan's gone, and then we were like, okay, got your coffee, got your food, and then we sit down and we watch the news so we can learn what we, what we should be angry about. And that's, that was like the morning ritual, right? And so what I've been doing recently that I really love is the kids go out, and then I get my coffee, and I get my food, and I walk out of the door. I let Julie uh, watch the news and tell me what I should be angry about, <laughs> and then I go out on the patio, and uh, I just sit, and we, we have um, this, this pergola now, um, but before I had the pergola, it was just sitting out on the patio where the, you know, the sun would hit you, but it doesn't matter because you're out there, and you can hear like birds chirping and stuff, and you hear the cars on I-80 roaring as they fly by. It's just melodic, uh, but as you're sitting there, I, what I try to do is I just read a little bit from God's word, 
And then I, I, right now I'm reading the devotion that we're going through with Purpose Driven Life. And so just each day, like five minutes in that. Like there's not a lot of, of time. But I, as I'm sitting there, I'm like, God, here's some things that are going on in my world today. This thing and this thing and this thing. And so I'm asking for you to shape my agenda and shape my perspective. And folks, it, it makes a difference. It makes a big difference. Because I'll tell you what happens when I don't do that. I've got that agenda in my head. And so I've got all the anxiety. I've got all the stress. I've got all the, okay, then this is probably going to go bad. And I go through the day with disappointments, stress, and anxiety. And you know what that produces at the end of the day? A bitter, angry, grumpy person that's not living life the way that he was intended. When I start that day letting God train my brain, I don't have fewer problems. I have the same amount of problems, but a different perspective that helps me navigate through them. It's not like the world like, and rainbows and beautiful unicorns are flying. It's not like everything's like magical. Things are just as crazy town and stressful sometimes. But the ability to go through that is radically different because I'm, I've, my day has been orchestrated that way. And so I would say if you can make it in your schedule, junior high or high school or college student, worker, whatever, 20 minutes earlier, wake up 20 minutes earlier, it's going to get cold here soon, so if you want to keep your fingers, maybe find a room in your house to do this, but find some place where you could do that. If you're someone that could take, when you take a lunch or something, maybe it's when you take a lunch. I've known people who've been like carpenters, and on their work sites, like they'll go off to their truck, and for 20 minutes, they'll spend time in God's Word just talking to them. Every day, that's what they do. I know people that, when, if they're on a job site where everyone gets a cigarette break, like when everyone's taking a cigarette break, they're going and they're spending time in God's Word. It's not a lot of time, but it's a little bit of time. I know people in our church, they actually bring their cigarettes with them and they're doing their devotions. Oh man, it's fantastic. And they're growing closer to God. They're allowing God to train their brain. They're allowing God to actually shape their perspective so that they could say, I don't want to live for my smile, for my pleasure. If I do that, I know where that goes. I know where that leads. Instead, I want to be the type of person that's allowing God to train my brain and to fix my perspective. Because here's the thing, and Rick Warren put this, I love this, he put this in the book. He said, when you fix your thoughts on God, he will fix your thoughts. When you fix your thoughts on God, he fixes your thoughts. Your perspective gets morphed and transformed and shaped. And all of a sudden you start finding yourself not fitting into the pattern that you were previously fitting into all the more easy. The last thing that we see in this passage is this. Then you'll be able to, after, after we, we, we do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, what? This is the coolest thing. We're created for whose pleasure? God's. And yet, he sees fit to allow us to experience the pleasure of simply obeying him. We weren't just created just to make God happy, make God smile. The process of letting that happen in our life actually brings pleasure to us and his perfect will. This is you enjoying your life. This is you having the opportunity to go through life recognizing that my life was intended to be this way. Not about me, not about my agenda, not about what everyone else is doing, but instead like actually orchestrating my life to serve and follow his lead. And in the process, I find myself enjoying it. I was talking with someone last night um, who is close to a person in our, in our area who that person's spouse and kids died in a car accident all in, 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 a, in a, just a flash 
pregnant wife and a couple of kids, and they were gone immediately when a truck rammed into them. I remember hearing the story of this person's life, and when I was talking to this person last night, they said, you'll never believe their life today. They're still broken up about their family being lost, no doubt. But man, this person's faith has brought them through that in amazing ways. They're actually, even having the ability to walk through life with joy and passion, knowing that that event was not the end. A person who has that perspective that seems so absolutely foreign to the pattern of this world, and it is, but the beauty is this, you can experience that. You can experience the reality of the fact that you can live out your design. It doesn't protect you from life's tragedies, but it allows you to go through them with perspective. You are, created to lo- you are loved by God, but you are created to love God back. That's your life. Don't go to church to worship. Bring your Monday through Saturday worship experience to church. Get rebooted and go right back on out and live it out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for the fact that you are truly someone who affords us the ability to make a choice. We have the decision to make on whether or not we are going to be making our life about our joy and our pride, that we can be proud of ourselves, that we can be uh, making ourselves happy. And, and that's so normative and natural, it happens unconsciously. Lord, bring us back to the reality that we were created for something greater than that, for someone greater than that, that we were created for you, to make you smile, that we can make you smile with the most minute decisions, decisions of what we're engaging in, the decisions of how we think, of how we talk, how we forgive. Lord, I pray that you allow everyone in this congregation to, to live out with passion, the design on their life, to live for your smile, to live for your pleasure, God, and that they'll see the effect of that in their life. And we'll give you thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.